to season one of Bristlecone Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside about faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. In this first season, we will be exploring foundational themes of a spiritual practice rooted in the earth. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. Join us as we strive to re-enchant the natural world with an ecologically-based spirituality that is centered in sacred texts, rooted in the earth, and lived through activist issues facing us today. s'mores and stuff it's like hey we're talking about death but also could you pass the marshmallows um just you know (laughs) all right so let's uh let's jump into this so this is actually going to be uh the final episode that we release in the season one of briscoe firesides um and this episode is a an important episode uh both to me and i know to to everyone who's here uh esther and luis um, this is kind of where the rubber hits the road. I remember Esther, uh, Esther and I um, had a conversation about a month ago where uh, she asked me about the podcast and I was telling her about the podcast and the Briscoe and Fireside's project. And she asked me, okay, well, what, what, what action items, like, how are you going to direct this energy into action in the world? And I was like, uh, and so it was the, it was, it was the, the reality is, is that I have my head in the clouds all the time, right? I'm, I miss the forest. I miss the trees for the forest all the time. Um, and so this conversation, um, will be about activism. It'll be about how do we take these things that we've been talking about in the, the last, um, the entire season and how do we apply them to the world and how do we live our own faith into the world in a way that is good and can change it? Um, I don't know if this is something like a little saying that I made up or if something that I read or heard somewhere, it's probably that I heard it somewhere, but I like to think that I made it up. But if you're, I like to, I like to say that if your faith isn't good for something, then it's good for nothing. Um, and, uh, so that's kind of, um, what I hope to get across in this episode is that I, I personally try and live a faith that is engaged in the real world. Um, and I hope that we can provide kind of a, a landscape or a grounding uh, for, for our listeners to be able to feel like their faith is connected to the world and provide avenues um, and models for them to be able to do so further. Um, so without any further ado, um, Esther uh, and Luis, can you give us a little bit of background about yourselves? We'll, we'll start with uh, Esther. Yeah, so... Uh, my name is Esther, and uh, I am a community organizer based in Salt Lake City. And oh, what background! Background about me: um, I was born in Spain, and I moved to the United States when I was around three years old because my parents were converted to the Mormon Church um, in Spain, and this was the promised land. So. They came here hoping to um, raise a family closer to other church members and, you know, and um, a culture they felt was going to sustain our, um, our faith. And uh, that kind of, sort of happened, <laughs> not in the way that they expected. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I think that the church helped me develop uh, a passion for justice in a way. Um, along with my lived experience as an undocumented immigrant here. And, um, and yeah, now I'm not uh, an active member of the church, but I do have a variety of spiritual practices and my activism, um, which has mostly been happening through racial justice um, migrant justice, and more recently, climate justice, um, is very much grounded in, in my spirituality. And I'm also a mom of a, a toddler, and I also nice. identify as queer. Right on. So those are little, little bits and pieces about me. 
Esther, we are super glad to have you on here. Uh, Esther and I have worked together on a number of campaigns uh, in the work that, that I do with Sua and the work that she does. Uh, and so we're super glad to have her. Uh, Luis? Yeah, uh, my name is Luis. Uh, I, I'm, I was, uh, I'm born originally from Los Angeles, but I actually grew up in Guatemala in a little stripe of Guatemala that actually touches the Caribbean. And lived there until I was 14 years old. Um, as a kid, I came from a really interesting environment where my grandfather had actually been exiled from Spain from having fought in the Spanish Civil War, having been conscripted by a side that the Catholic Church was on, but that also killed his brother. And so it was a lot of anger towards the Catholic Church that I saw as a kid. And also, I became Catholic as a kid. Uh, and I remember uh, learning about the love of Jesus and, um, and eventually uh, leading to being in a, in a parish in Puerto Barrios, Guatemala, where we had a, a fiery Spanish priest that would talk about questions of justice and, and morality and, and goodness. And so um, my family migrated here when I was around 14 uh, and we went to a Catholic church here. It was very different. We didn't... Uh, it doesn't did not feel at all like in Latin America, but I went to an LDS church, uh, um, um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and and uh, and that felt very different. And I became a member, and I was a member for uh, a good half of my life until probably more recently. Um, and uh, yeah, as a member, it's uh, it's been interesting to be a convert uh, of color and the spaces I've been in. Um, it's been interesting to face challenges around social issues that feel important. But also, um, out of virtue of my education, I also got to do my last graduate program at the University of Notre Dame. And in some ways, I got to re-encounter my Catholicism. Uh, I spent time with folks from the Catholic Worker uh, of South Bend, Indiana. I lived in a house with students and, you know, doing their master's in divinity uh, and theology. And in some ways, I've I've figured out... um, it's like I think I've encountered uh, just a, a Christianity that feels more true to, to the practice I aim to live in. So in the service of God. Thank you, guys. Um, I know I'm really excited to have you. And we chatted a little bit before this. And um, it's just really exciting to have you guys on. Um, and I, I mean, you guys both offer a unique perspective on faith that I think um, will add to the conversation that we'll hopefully have tonight. Um, but I think something that runs through all of us is this unique understanding of faith and how it informs our activism or how it informs how we want um, to be activists, right? Um, and so I think, you know, something that at the outset of this is important to perhaps address is, you know, why it's essential that um, communities of faith do participate in activism. Um, and, you know, is there is there something within that community of faith um that, you know, they possess as opposed to, um, you know, simple, or I shouldn't say simple, but, but kind of this basic understanding of activism. What, what does faith add to your activism and how has it informed it? Um, I guess I'm going to start when I was a kid, um, growing up LDS, my parents told me that everyone was a child of God and, I took that very seriously. And um, since that time, any moment that I experienced or witnessed around me, um, people not being treated like they were children of God, um, it it was something I was very sensitive to. And uh, I just had this like very strong sense of fairness (laughs) that was tied up in that. And yeah. And my parents told me that, you know, regardless of, of, um, how someone looks, how they live their life, uh, that they're worthy of, um, love and dignity and respect. And my own parents didn't always live (laughs) into that. I certainly haven't either. Um, but for me that, that feels like it's the core of, um, of most religions and most 
spiritual practices is this uh, idea that everyone is divine, that all life is sacred. And that is what, that's kind of like the core um, of what to, for me, activism is as well. It's um, seeing that in everyone and then the barriers that are created by our society, our culture, our policies, politics, um, that separate us from that divine, uh, that divinity within ourselves and seeing that in others. And so I just don't really, you know, if um, your faith doesn't see that in the world, you know, that, uh, that there are all these barriers <laughs> um, to that core principle um, and it isn't moving you into action to um, bring those barriers down and create ways of, of living that affirm that divinity, not just in humans, but in all the life around us, then what's the purpose really? Um, so yeah, that's, that's why it's, I think it's so important. I think uh, I understand the question being like, uh, why is it essential that communities of faith participate in activism? But the question is, is a hard one for me to answer because I'm not sure if from my perspective, like that question makes full sense. And so to explain, like, I, I will define a community of faith uh, being a, just a group of people who share uh, a certain view about what life is about and that choose to be with each other to share those norms, beliefs, and values. And I think that that necessitates, you know, the time that you're actually meeting up all in the church, that's activism, right? And so um, there's ways in which um, I think maybe activism might be coming from a framework of, you know, contemporary movements within like uh, a secular state where religion is no longer a part of it, where um, people come together outside of a faith-based perspective maybe to like move politics forward because again, church and state are separated. But that's probably more of a modern notion, uh, like a, a more recent notion than, than it is like, a, like an ancient one. Um, and so I think it's just what we do, right? Uh, if you are... Um, you know, if you are, if you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, and you believe in, in in feeding the poor and being with the sick, and you have a relief society that is looking out for folks in the community who are experiencing these issues, that is activism for me. That is organizing. Um, if you are someone like, uh, you know, Father Jean Vanier, who started L'Arche International in France, that works with um, um, folks that are differently able, right? Um, who uh, they they interact in that space out of a position of faith, out of God's love for all of His children. And so, um, I think that any time in which we're participating in faith uh, community is, in some ways, already activism. There's a question, of course, of activist movements and whether what happens into, is, is all activism necessarily an exercise of faith. And in some ways, I kind of think that is true as well, that if you are like wanting to act to, you know, counteract climate change, there is a set of beliefs that are bringing you together. Uh, uh, understanding of how the world is, how the world works, how humanity works, and it's binding us together. And so more than essential, it's, it's like, it necessitates it. It's happening both at the same time, at least from my perspective.
No, I, I, I love that. I, uh, I think sometimes, especially in the, in the, the LDS community, we get high centered on what it, what it means to belong to our community. It means to be obedient. It means to look like this really specific stereotype, right? That it looks, it means to, to look and enact in this way. And I love Luis that you kind of, you said that, um, and, and Esther in both of your responses, it's my faith, um, is a, is activism already because by being a you know a Christian, I am mandated to take care of the poor and the marginalized in my community, and so my my the practice of my faith is already activism. Um, I ab I you know completely resonates uh, with me. Um, and Louise, something that I I heard in your response was uh, that in some way is is all activist work spiritual work uh, so uh, you know that's something that um i want to 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 tease out a little bit with with us um you know because maybe maybe it isn't maybe it is um but i know that some of the best activists that i've known in my in my work with sua have had some kind of a spiritual grounding um they've been rooted in some kind of a spiritual practice uh, and I know that that's, that informs their own, um, activism greatly. And so I want to, uh, to, you know, ask, ask the question to all of us. Um, do you think a spiritual life is a natural outgrowth of activist work? Or like, is it a chicken and egg kind of thing? Or is it that the, the two kind of grow together activist work and, and, uh, and a spiritual life? Anyone who has thoughts can, can talk first. That's a big question. I know. So maybe you chew on it. <laughs> Yeah, I also, um, I also love that you lift that, lifted that up, Luis. Um, you know, the question of is activism uh, a move towards faith? Because I really think that to be an organizer and an activist, regardless of what spiritual community you come from or not what religious community you're in or not, it is, it is an act of faith. And uh, it's interesting because I've had this conversation with a lot of friends and I have spent the past, um, not, not this past couple of years, but before that I was working for a multi-faith seminary that um, my job was to support a digital organizing platform where um all of these different progressive faith groups would use it for different issues. Um, and my job was to help them communicate about their campaign to, you know, on social media and email lists and, and all of that. And, uh, and then when I moved back here to Utah uh, and started organizing and started to have these conversations about, you know, activism is an act of faith. Um, a lot of my friends here were like almost triggered <laughs> by, <laughs> uh, by my, um, opinions and experiences around that. And, you know, like, Oh no, don't use the word faith around here. Uh, just cause of the, you know, the trauma that is, has been experienced by people, um, here in Utah um, in their experiences in the Mormon church. And, uh, but I, I just kept asking, like, you know, especially when I started to organize in climate justice spaces, it's, <sighs> the way that we work is so, you know, you have to have this like long view because, uh, where we have this, like this expansive vision of what we feel the world needs to be and how people need to be treated. And, and then just like, you know, the overwhelming barriers to all of that and structures and, um, and the onslaught of attacks against our communities. And sometimes it just feels like we're just not going to get there. And we're certainly not going to get there in our lifetime. <laughs> and so I think to, to continue that work 
And whether you're thinking more incrementally and you're doing mutual aid or whether you're thinking more systemically and, um, you know, building movement, uh, I think it really does require faith that, you know, to quote Dr. King, the arc of the universe bends towards justice in one way or another. And, um, and in climate justice, you know, if you understand that things are actually are going to get worse, um, that the climate crisis is going to escalate, even if we like stopped business as usual right now and shifted all of our practices, we still have decades of consequences <laughs> to um, deal with. And so I think that in that sense, to be a climate justice activist is also to have faith that um, whatever lies ahead, the work that we're doing now is going to help prepare communities for that. And that there may be a transition moment where humanity is no longer part of the earth. And so what does faith look like in that, in that context? Um, I'm thinking uh, for myself, as you're talking just in a, in a slightly different direction, like uh, like faith might involve spirituality, although I feel like not every faith movement is necessarily very spiritual. Uh, and not all activism is necessarily progressive. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, you have, a, you know, in some ways like the, the you know, the birth of Daesh or the, you know, Islamic State, right? Is, is fed by activism within Wahhabi and Salafist uh, movements that are trying to restore an original vision of Islam, whatever that means. It's a, it's a very problematic, you know, theological exercise even in, in Islam uh, or the Tea Party, right? Uh, there's folks that love Donald Trump from, you know, evangelical movements, from right-wing movements, and they're really effective and they produce a really strong sense of like community, they have a strong sense of values and worth, and they feel like doing this, it's almost like an existential exercise. So just to like uh, to clarify that activism is not necessarily, it doesn't always have to be a good thing. Uh, it's just a thing. Mm -hmm. But then there's a the question of spirituality, right? And I think that question of spirituality is actually a really valuable one because uh, at least from the way that I kind of approach maybe my own you know, faith journey is that, um, uh, and, I, and I, again, this probably is, is reflective of like a very Catholic slash, you know, uh, Mormon upbringing, but um, I feel there's a lot of trials, tribulations, challenges, traumas that are faced, um, and that those come with a reason and a purpose, um, and that I'm meant to learn from them, and they're also gifts from God that are to help me in finding my divine purpose and in some ways uh for instance like in the case of in my case of my family yesterday was about the 12 year anniversary i think of my sister and her husband uh, being killed back in guatemala um i'll save the details but it was done by two gunmen um and this is in a you know post-war uh increasing levels of violence sort of context in Guatemala. I wasn't living there, but there was a sense in which I felt a lot of anger and sadness out of losing a loved one, a sense of peace that I felt that that loved one was in a, in a different place, in a, you know, in what I would consider heaven. Um, but there was also this other question of why is there evil and why would somebody do this? And there's a way in which um, to engage that question, I had to actually start thinking into myself, like, what would somebody lead? Some, what would, why would someone be led to do something so heinous, right, as taking somebody else's life? And I think uh, that's a conversation that goes into trauma, into how our body reacts, into how our spirit feels about the violence, the oppression that, you know, we experience as children, as adults. And then in a way that sometimes some of these acts become natural consequences out of the environment in which we've been raised. And so 
I often see like a cycle of trauma consistently happening where it feels like I experience now this trauma. Now I'll have this anger in my soul and I will want to find vengeance and then take it on someone else, which then that person will experience harm and then they will experience trauma and they'll be angry and felt like something hasn't really been fully addressed. So they'll take it out on somebody else. And so spirituality is almost a practice of like, what the hell is happening here? Yes. Uh, and, and like, um, how did we get here and how do we understand what's happening? And for me, in my case, I saw it as, um, as human beings being children of God that have had faced challenges and that um, God has a plan and a purpose for them. But for me, mine would be to forgive um, and to heal. And so I see spirituality as a process of healing personally, right? Overcoming the challenges that, that have been sent our way. And also because I need to heal, I also need to act into the world, knowing that other people are also exposed to this forms of structural violence, whether it's uh, becoming child soldiers or living in poverty or being recruited to gangs or, you know, being a person of color in the United States and or, or a, um, you know, a member of the LGBT community, right, and facing their own levels of violence. So that's for me why spiritual life is also an outgrowth of, you know, doing activist work. It's, it's part of healing. Excellent. Thank you, Luis, for sharing. I have so many thoughts and so many good questions. Abby, do you have any thoughts? <laughs> so. Well, I just wholeheartedly agree with what you both said and, and especially Luis, um, just, I mean, understanding that, that spirituality, um, and faith offer kind of a perspective of hope rather than simply, um, you know, removal from the situation or, um, perhaps continuing on in that kind of cyclical nature of trauma. Um, like you said, healing, um, but also just this idea that, that there's something better to be offered through spirituality than simply, um, without it, I guess. Um, and, and what that spirituality looks like may be different for everyone. Um, but that it, that it can be, um, a position, um, you know, well, it can put you in a position to have more hope or, or perhaps have that opportunity to heal as opposed to simply just, um, you know, the opposite uh, of, you know, running yourself into the ground or, or um, not being able to kind of carry on um, with the, with the trauma that you hold or the, or the wounds that you have. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'm really pleased with the conversation so far. Um, Esther, I, I loved in, in your response, your, uh, that activism is a practice of faith because all the things that we're at, we're actively, uh, you know, working towards are things that exist far flung out in the future, right? That we might not even live to see them through. Um, and that's, you know, it's almost like Sisyphus pushing a rock up a hill endlessly for the duration of his days, right? Um, and so, uh, I, I mean, I definitely feel that in some of my work that, you know, I, it's, I feel like it's like planting, um, redwood trees, right? The, the, the practice of planting a tree is knowing that your grandkids are going to have shade. Maybe not you, but your grandkids are going to have shade. Um, and, uh, I, you know, something that I think I wanted to, to, to ask about is, um, and I'll, I'll try and tease it out more. Um, but what role does lamentation play in your own faith and in your own activism? Um, and let me, let me kind of, uh, uh, foreground that a little bit. Um, I know in the, uh, in the Christian tradition, the, the, the image of, of Jesus crucified and of being wounded, right? That when he's, when he's resurrected after he's uh, been, after he uh, was, was crucified, he, he implores people to touch his wounds. And then that's the transformational moment is that when they, when they touch the, the, the wounds in his hands and in his side, um, that's when they are like, Oh my gosh, I'm, you know, I feel like I'm remade. Um, 
So in what role, uh, in what way is your own faith a, uh, a touching of the wound? Maybe not a, maybe of, of, you know, the woundedness of reality or the woundedness of other, of other communities, the woundedness of the earth. Um, what role does lamentation and sadness play? I mean, I, you know, maybe we don't need to get too deep into the sadness, but I feel like in all activism, at least in, in my activism, um, there is certainly a, 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 a vein of sadness <laughs> that, that is in there that, that I recognize that there's injustices in the communities that I'm involved with. Um, and it's from that, that sadness or that lamentation that I, uh, that I try and act, um, so that I never forget exactly, you know, what it is that I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm fighting for. Um, so I guess my, my question to all of us would be what, role does lamentation or touching the wound play in our, in our faith and in our activism? So I, I think for me, this one is complicated because I think that there needs to be a balance. And in my experience, um, being in a, so when I, uh, when I first came out as undocumented, um, I kind of felt like I had to tell this sob story about myself in order to move people, um, into action. And I, shortly after I started to organize in the sanctuary movement, which is um, a movement that was, I mean, it goes back, (laughs) you know, centuries, but um, here in the United States, it started up again in the 1980s um, to, uh, to, yeah, provide sanctuary and churches for um, migrant refugees. And then it um, kind of started up again more visibly um, a little less than a decade ago. And uh, to, yeah, basically faith leaders and faith communities taking in um, folks who were resisting their deportation and claiming sanctuary and churches and housing them for, you know, Um, So some folks have been in sanctuary for years, including in our own community. And um, when I first started organizing with the sanctuary movement, um, it was very, and it still is in a lot of ways, but very like had this like white savior narrative around it. And it was about, you know, white people and um, white pastors, usually men, you know, doing this like radical act of uh, resistance. And the stories that we were telling were just very um, trauma-based stories, uh, just, you know, highlighting the very real injustice and the very real um, violence that people were facing and had experienced. And yeah, and across, even in other issues that I was working on, that was just the, you know, you tell the story that's going to help people touch the wound and move them into action. And that just didn't feel good to me. I felt like um, in telling my own story, I was leaving out so much complexity and so I was leaving out like all the pieces of me that had helped me survive. I was leaving out the people and community that had um, lifted me up and supported me. Um, and, And I felt like we were leaving that out of a lot of people's stories. And there was a moment where, um, I went down to Arizona where it was kind of like the at the time, kind of the center of the sanctuary movement. And there were a lot of cases in that area. And um, I met some of the folks who were in sanctuary and was doing some like communications trainings and stuff. 
And after that experience and like hearing directly from them, um, we just felt like we needed a reframe <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was great because we started telling stories that people were, we started just lifting up people telling their own stories, first of all, not filtered through like, you know, the people who were supporting folks, letting people speak directly for themselves. And, um, and it became an empowerment narrative where people were doing this radical act of resisting their own deportation and choosing to go into sanctuary, which is like such a huge sacrifice. You know, it's like one thing to have a community show up and provide like meals and housing and all of that. Um, if you have enough people, it's not really that big of a sacrifice for a whole community to do that. Um, but for the person who is in sanctuary, like, especially for years, I mean, it's, it's like prison really, you know, and, um, and all the things that come with, you know, the mental health obstacles and, um, isolation and all of the things. And so to do that is just huge. And so, um, I think that I am in a space right now where I'm really trying to, um, create space for more holistic stories and also more holistic movement spaces where we are touching the wound. We're doing, we're, you know, um, getting into the shadow work <laughs> and, um, and we're also balancing that out with narratives that empower us and tell the truth of how we've survived in this moment and, um, and who supported us through that. And, um, and what could be if, you know, um, if we start to imagine and ask for bigger things and get, you know, more bold in, in our actions. I think, uh, Stair, you're, you're bringing up some of those, uh, good, uh, warning signs that I feel like uh, people get sometimes activated into activism by triggering like a, a very savior colonial complex in a way that's profoundly disempowering to the people that are most marginalized by, by our social systems. I'm thinking a lot about like, um, again, Jesus in this example, right, that you're bringing up, Madison. Um, and like the Jesus that... I feel closeness to uh, and intimacy is not just the spiritual Jesus, but also the historical Jesus, a historical Jesus that I understand as, as one that came from a poor class, you know, son of a carpenter, uh, born a refugee, uh, one that chose to be in community with the poor and the marginalized. Um, uh, and not out of just simple glorification, but, he was also actively resisting the Roman Empire, the ways in which um, imperialist dynamics were affecting the local politics, uh, creating a, a class culture that was incredibly cruel and, and painful. And in some ways, he was so radically there that he was, you know, killed because of that, right? He was a martyr. And... Um, and I think what's what I think about what, how I choose to interpret that that uh, sort of reality is is one where I think Jesus is constantly calling us to um, be more proximate to pain. This is something that you probably hear someone like Brian Stevenson, Equal Justice Initiative. There's a whole movie you can check it out or TEDx or whatever. But um, that proximity to to being proximate to pain, right? Like when you, when, when we're saying like, touch my wounds to me, it's like, look at the, look at the outcome of the society in which we've chosen to live in, in which we've chosen to consent that has in fact caused this pain. And I'm one of you. Right. Um, and there's this sort of like seeing 
ourselves as well in Jesus, right? As someone who's suffering. And how does that look like, you know, in terms of like a lesson for, for the rest of us? For me, personally, like the social justice tradition from Christianity that I have particularly adhere to is like, there are people who are unsheltered, people who are suffering through drug addiction, people who have been, who experience abuse, uh, folks who, um, you know, go through many different uh, circumstances. And a lot of our exercise of faith becomes something that is very distant from the realities that people are living, while at the same time, we're also able to be distanced because of the system that requires their pain, their suffering, their oppression, right? Their subjugation, their disempowerment. And so for me, it's like, if I'm not proximate to pain, there's something wrong here in terms of my own faith, in, in terms of my own desire to live in discipleship of Jesus Christ. And so that lamentation to me is, is like, it's like the grief over the fact that I am here talking to you in this podcast out of a very nice piece of technology where there's essential workers out there who are catching COVID. There's people who aren't sheltered, who the police are harassing tonight. Um, I get to do all this while other people don't. And it isn't that they don't because they're, they're less. It's because in some ways I have participated in, in that. And that therefore I need to do something about this. And so when when you see Jesus and his wounds, then it's like I cannot just see it and be like, oh, that's that's cool. Good for you. Like, no, it's a shocking, right? We should be shocked. We should be alarmed about the state of our society. And I think that's what Jesus Christ and, and I would argue even Christianity is calling us to. Um, and hence why. There's a, such a rich social justice tradition uh, within Christian practice. Yeah, Luis, that makes me think about um, the constant reframe that uh, our movements make around, you know, charity. Solidar- we say solidarity, not charity. And I, uh, it's funny because people say that all the time, but um, I don't see that being fully practiced in our movement spaces, definitely not in faith communities, definitely not in the Mormon church all the time. Um, it's very, very much a charity perspective where you're, yeah, the white savior, like you're supporting other people who are less fortunate than you. And um, I think that I, I learned, this is a lesson that I learned through the Moral Mondays movement, um, which is now more like the poor people's campaign and Reverend William Barber in North Carolina, um, that he's constantly saying like white people need to understand that they are, um, that we are uh, affected. <laughs> we are impacted by white supremacy as well. And um, it's been very difficult to uh, to be in, because my most of my organizing has been in Black-led spaces and migrant-led spaces. And when I moved back to Utah, it was in mostly white <laughs> spaces. And so there, and there's this thing that I kept seeing in spaces here where white folks would like enter into a multiracial space and immediately talk about their privilege and other themselves from, you know, distance themselves from the other people in the room. And in a way, center themselves, center themselves by talking about their privilege, um, and uh, and not take into account that white supremacy. That if you really believe that we're all connected, and if you um, are really trying to be in solidarity with others, you need to really see how these structures. Um, do impact you, how they distance you from yourself, from your own soul, how they disconnect your soul, how they disconnect you from other people. And um, some of the practices that I've been bringing in to organizing spaces here um, that I learned from um, the Moral Mondays, Poor People's Campaign, and also from um, this movement incubator called Momentum is this practice called resonance. 
And it's actually based in science. It's a practice that is not, <laughs> it's, it's very spiritual, but it's also very science-based in that um, it's some like neurobiologists who um, see our nervous systems as connected to each other. And that um, when we like, you know, are feeling a, an emotion, it's, you know, you can like feel each other's energy. And the way to describe this is that, uh, you know, when there's like a room full of instruments and one of them um, is played that all of the other instruments vibrate and that humans are the same. We all kind of like vibrate together. And um, if you are attuned to that, to each other, um, you can feel that resonance more. And so we do these like deep listening practices to um, help, you know, it's like a very small thing to help people kind of heal that connection and um, be able to see the threads um, that connect this. So uh, I don't remember where I was going with all of this, <laughs> but we're all connected at the roots. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I really love what both of you have said, and especially that idea of kind of connectivity between, um, you know, people. Uh, and I think something that kind of goes back to, well, what both of you are saying, just that individuals, I think, often don't like to sit in discomfort. I think, um, you know, a lot of why we don't listen to each other or why we don't practice solidarity, we practice charity, um, is because engaging in that, um, you know, healing with someone else requires that we accept some of that discomfort, right? And, And that pain, obviously. Um, and that is really hard to do. Um, I think in some ways it it positions us to, um, you know, have to open up our own wounds. Right. Um, but I think that's exactly what Christ asks us to do, you know, uh, mourn with those who mourn, um, comfort those who stand in need of comfort. Um, and so in some ways it's really disappointing that we aren't better at it because it's what we're asking or asked of, um, and, and that it's required of us. Right. Um, and so I, I think probably most of what we could do is, is listen and, and listen and engage with other people. So I love that idea of deep listening, um, and, and kind of experiencing the vibrations between one another, because that discomfort is so necessary to understanding how people need to heal and how, how, how to understand people's perspective beyond your own. Um, because if you're constantly projecting yourself onto them, you're never going to be able to allow them to heal or, or even understand why they're in need of healing. Right. Um, so that idea of, you know, coming in with your privilege announced, um, as opposed to allowing people to, um, you know, engage and, and share in that space, uh, just shuts that door to healing, shuts that door to, um, you know, experiencing Christ-like love or, or Christ-like healing. Excellent. I, uh, th- th- this is, uh, something that we've talked about a lot, uh, d- doing this, this season is that radical connection we all have with each other is the kind of the oneness of, of all reality that's kind of rooted in a stereo. You, you mentioned at the beginning, our, our own divine blueprint that we all share, right. The, uh, that we're all children of God. Um, and that, that, you know, in the, one of the previous episodes that we recorded that, 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 um, kind of divine DNA is shared with all of reality. It's not just a human thing. It's, it's something that's shared with, you know, especially if we're talking LDS, uh, LDS, uh, scripture, as well as, you know, Buddhism or Taoism is that that kind of divine oneness pervades throughout all of all matter for like trees to, to rocks, to animals. Um, and so I think, um, what has been important throughout the recording of this, this season is a a reframing of our own identities away from just our own one self and expanding our notion of self to include much more to include our, our, you know, our neighborhood, our community, and to include even the non-human world. Um, 
And Esther, I really loved the word that, you know, solidarity that you bring in, uh, because I'm, I'm captured by this idea of radical solidarity that, um, that, you know, I, uh, I think what faith, what faith means is, uh, if we, if we take it back to its kind of, you know, original meaning, um, it's, you know, rather than just believing in something that you can't see, faith is fidelity. To be faithful to something is to be loyal to it. Um, and Luis, you brought up that in the life of Jesus, God demonstrates very clearly where God, where God's loyalties lie. God's loyalties lie in with refugees. God's loyalties lie with the 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 wounded and the sick and the most marginalized of us. I mean, it's we're three days from Christmas right now as we're recording this, and you know, there's almost no like better image than the than the baby Jesus being born in a stable because uh, because he was as low as I mean, I know we we like to kind of talk about it in this kind of cosmic sense of like. Um, you know, oh, it's, you know, the condescension of God that's so great coming down into this little thing, but it actually is, is, is meant to be a demonstration to us of where our own loyalties ought to lie. Our own loyalties as individuals, as members of this community ought to be with the most marginalized and ostracized and alienated among our own communities. Um, and that, uh, so I, I want to kind of tease out, um, what exactly the difference is, and we've kind of talked about it a little bit, but I want to kind of paint a, a, a picture of what sol- radical solidarity looks like in response, you know, versus just like service or charity. Um, and like, what is the lived difference between those two ways of doing, you know, some of the same stuff? I, it'll, you know, whether or not it's just a, a, a shift in energy and how we're doing something or whether or not um, the, the actions that we take uh, shift when we reframe our perspective away from just doing good things in our neighborhood to being, I'm in solidarity with all things and with the, the, the most marginalized in my community. It was a huge, it was a huge uh, thing that I just spat out. Uh, so chew on it for, for a little bit. Uh, but I, but in essence, let, let's, let's talk about the, the difference between radical solidarity and, and like service and charity. I'm just trying to think about um, where to ground this. I, I feel like when, when you were sharing stare about the, the, the point of like uh sometimes opening up with your white privilege or your, your whatever your privilege is in a way that it actually recenters work and what the conversation around you and not around the people that have experienced the most challenges. I feel like being a good activist on solidarity just starts with acknowledgement, but the really radical, like radical work is how do I stop being the narrator of what's happening and actually, like, decenter this and give voice—not give voice, but like, not take away from the voices and experiences and the stories that are being told. Um, and so, that's that's just one thing that is that is coming up for me around like um, how, like, if Jesus, if Jesus would have gotten to write his own biography as opposed to having folks write it a hundred years later <laughs> under a pro, like in the middle of a very political movement, like, you know, facing all this persecution. Like, I wonder if you would have been like, yeah, um, I'm the illest. Look I'm at me. popular I'm, now. I'm curing the sick. <laughs> would, would he, would he be doing like humans of, you know, humans of Israel, right. Or, uh, Israel, Palestine. I, I can say, see it now. Uh, Judea, whatever it is. Um, I don't know. Um, The other thing I'm, I'm just thinking, like, so if we end up really living in radical solidarity, then what does that look like, right? And I feel like, uh, I think you were, there's a few things coming up for me. One is, like, thinking about Dorothy Day, right? Uh, she's the founder, she's one of the founders of the Catholic Worker Movement. Um, there's ways in which her, she came actually from a, a very secular, Marxist, Chicago, Haymarket, you know, sort of background, atheist, well, faith, and then became atheist, and then came back to faith. And uh, something that, that was very important for, for um, 
for Dorothy Day is how do we live closest to those that are most affected by how we're choosing to live. And there's this like one, like living in closeness, living in likeness, but also like uh, there's the other, another, you know, like a movement around that space, the, the Catholic Peace Fellowship that um, has made a decision like people in the Catholic Peace Fellowship to like not pay taxes, right? Like they literally earn enough money so they don't actually have to pay taxes into the government so it doesn't go into um, the machinery of war that is killing so many people, right? And so what, what does it look like to live in radical solidarity when, when like we allow like rethinking the story of what's happening to be told from a different perspective? Um, the other thing I'm thinking about is it has to do more with like uh, uh, gender. I've been part of a of a group called uh, Mormons Building Bridges, um, and so with Mormons Building Bridges, we've organized locally, um, uh, you know, retreats where you, we have had folks from you know LGBT plus members of the church and also family members who are not LGBT. Plus, and so, um, and there's like this process of like, you could see the beginning of a retreat where it's like, oh, I have my kid and they're like, you know, they're gay and I don't really understand them and I don't know if I approve them, but I love them, right? They're living with that, like, like that, um, that polarity and like that contradiction. And they're like, I don't understand this because I'm being told one thing on one side and this is what I think I'm supposed to be doing about the things about gender but I also love my grandkid or I also love my niece or I also love my sibling or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and the process of it, it ends up like engaging, like thinking as well about gender, right? And how gender also affects us and how we think about like, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be straight? What does it mean to be non-straight? What does it mean to be queer, right? And that the fact that there's like norms and roles that, we do come with, but that also affect us all. And in some ways, like understanding how we're just different, not better, but we're all children of God, like that really unleashes things for people. And I feel like what's been most helpful for me as a, as a cis hetero male has been to notice how the, the things that are oppressing both women and uh, members of the LGBT plus community within, uh, you know, Christian congregations has also been a thing that has been oppressing me, right? The the very patriarchy that has thought that I can only be like for me to live my role of being Christian man, I have to work, provide, be a warrior. Um, I only have certain level of, of feelings that I'm allowed to express <laughs> and to really stay on in complexity, and that's it. Uh, and women, well their job is to be divine mothers and like, you know, do the emotional labor for everybody. And so, um, well, th this is me, of course, like, um, uh, ranting a bit, but, but, uh, but the point there is like that recognition, like not just like, Oh, I'm just, I'm pro gay or I'm like, I'm pro this, I'm pro that. Like actually recognizing how there's the structures that are not allowing us to be fully human and actively working to like rethink and reimagine so that we don't actually have to go back to the pro and con, but actually just live into a new imagine imagination, a prophetic imagination. Uh, yes, 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 yes to all of that, Luis. Um yeah, and I think this question for me is very much tied into what someone might ask as a follow-up is like, oh, well, what can I do, you know, because radical solidarity, it feels like so overwhelming and thinking about all these structures and white supremacy and homophobia and, you know, patriarchy and all this stuff is just like so intertwined into everything, like, where do I begin? Um, and you know, lately I've just been going back to the very basics in almost all the organizing workshops and conversations and anything, anytime we're starting like a new project or whatever. Um, and it's just to ask people like, what are your core values? And 
where do you see the disconnect between your values and how um, things are playing out? And start with your own life. (laughs) Where do you see yourself not living into your values in your relationship with yourself? Where do you see yourself not living into your values in your relationship with your family and your friends? And for me, it's that, you know, that one core value, like everyone is a child of God. There are just so many ways that I'm not living into that. And I'm not seeing my own worth, self-worth and ways that I'm acting uh, against myself. Um, Every time that I say yes to something that I don't really want to do. Every time, you know, could name a bunch of different things (laughs) that I do uh, to cause harm to myself and to not treat myself as a child of God and things that I do to others. And, and then just the fact that our society is structured in a way where, you know, like I order takeout and I am supporting, you know, uh, more fossil fuels being used and exploitation of workers and um, all sorts of things. Like just the most mundane things that we do because of the structures that we live in. Um, cause harm. And so, yeah, I think it's just important to really like start to dig in to your own (laughs) self and how can you be in radical solidarity with yourself? And then how can you be in radical solidarity with your relationships? And for me, it really is all about relationships, organizing faith. It, it, it's about uh, creating liberated relationships with ourselves and each other. And that's where we can start. <laughs> Feels like the Amish got it right in some ways, uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, not participating in, in the structures of violence. 